You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss who took Molly Bish. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I hope you all had a fabulous Thanksgiving, no matter where you were. Um, Am I alone in saying that the Sunday scaries were pretty intense this past Sunday? It is so freaking hard to resume normal life after the Thanksgiving holiday. I feel like the days between Christmas and Thanksgiving break are essentially filler episodes in what is our lives. <laughs> and then Christmas Day is like the season finale that you're so excited and pumped for, but then you get really bummed afterwards because you know that you've got to wait another year to watch the new season. Am I right? Or am I right? Or am I right? I think I'm right. <laughs> Little light housekeeping before we begin. If you are not already following me on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, then what on earth are you doing? You totally should be. There you can see images of the cases that we cover. You can comment your thoughts and theories all while engaging with other like-minded and beautiful people such as yourself. Every once in a while, I'll pop in and hang out. It's a grand old time. Also, that is the best place to send me a case suggestion of a case that you want to hear covered on this podcast. I have a few in the vault from you that I am so excited to share, including, and this is a little hint, hint, a listener suggestion I'm going to cover next week. You have been warned. It is a tough one. I also have a website where you can binge our now 60 episodes. Can you believe that? I feel like the time has seriously just flown by. I remember when I didn't even think I would reach 50 and now we're like 10 over 50. My ultimate goal is to hit 100 episodes because I was reading these statistics and it said that less than half of the podcasts reach a 100th episode. And we are well on my way, my friends. I was talking to my husband the other day, talking about the podcast and my goals with it, and I told him that I've really enjoyed making these episodes that are like 30 minutes or less. My thinking is that a lot of you probably listen to my podcast episodes when you're getting ready for work or driving to or from work, and the average commute is about 20 to 25 minutes. I don't really want you to be listening to an episode and then get to a super interesting part and then You just have to wait for lunch to hear the rest. That makes, that like sounds like torture to me. So that's going to kind of be my goal from here on out, but you need to let me know. I'm going to create a little poll on my stories and you can share your opinions with me because ultimately I just want to do what makes you guys happy and that you guys are going to be happy with the content that I'm creating for you. Speaking of which, I just cannot go on an episode without thanking y'all for picking this podcast to listen to. I am fully aware of the onslaught of choices that there are out there, especially when it comes to true crime podcasts. And just the fact that you would choose to spend a half an hour with me once a week seriously means the world. I'm happy that you're here and I'm so grateful to you. With that being said, let's tackle the case at hand today. Who took Molly Bish? 
Molly Bish was born on August 2nd, 1983. She was born in Detroit, Michigan, but she grew up in Warren, Massachusetts. She was a beautiful 16-year-old with blue eyes and blonde hair, which is seriously unfair because I doubt anyone ever used the word beautiful to describe me as a 16-year-old. In fact, here are some of the words that I think would have more accurately depicted me when I was her age. Uh, there's gawky, awkward, <laughs> dork, um, raptor-like, and a rooster. My hair was really fluffy and frizzy, and I semi-learned how to fix it later on in life like two weeks ago. Anyways, this is just my jealous rant because I don't think Molly Bish ever had or went through an awkward face. Anyways, like I was saying, she was born in Detroit, but spent most of her childhood in Warren, Massachusetts. The reason for her parents' move just makes this case all the more devastating. Apparently, there had been an abduction slash murder of a young woman on her way to school that was a little too close for comfort, and the family decided they wanted to leave the big city and its rampant crime rates and go somewhere a little more safe. So they chose Warren, Massachusetts. Unfortunately, the Bish family would soon learn that no such safe place actually exists. We live in a scary and uncertain world, people. Molly was the youngest of three siblings. She had one older brother and one older sister. Molly Bish was the baby of the family, but she didn't fit into the baby sibling stereotype. She worked really, really hard. She kept good grades. She played soccer, basketball, and softball. She was funny and well-liked by all of her classmates. In the summer of 2000, Molly began a job as a lifeguard at Commons Pond. This was a dream come true for her because she wanted to be able to make money to become more independent. Working at Commons was also a dream come true for pretty much all of the teenagers in the area as it was a known local hangout for her classmates. I mean, what could be better than getting paid to watch kiddos playing in the water, getting a tan, all while catching up with friends here and there? Commons Pond was a man-made pond surrounded by a forest. When you look at the pond for what it really is, I mean, it's really pretty isolated, but it was a really popular spot and there were usually always families around taking their kids for a little swim and they also held swimming lessons there. Molly's older brother had actually been a lifeguard at that exact same pond when he was in high school, so he had kind of gotten Molly the in when it came to snagging the sweet, sweet gig. The day of Molly's disappearance had not started off the greatest. Um, she had actually learned that the night before, one of her soccer teammates had been hit by a car and was currently in critical condition. Her mom, Maggie, asked if she wanted to call in sick to work, but Molly had just started and she knew that it was too late of a notice to get someone else to cover her shift, so she insisted to her mother that she would be fine and that she just wanted to go to work and hopefully would help to distract her from her friend's situation. Molly and her mother got into the car and made their way to the pond. Along the way, they stopped at a gas station to pick up some water bottles as it was projected to be a fairly warm day and Molly's mom didn't want Molly getting dehydrated. Then, the two stopped by the police station to pick up a two-way radio. This is how the lifeguards communicated not only to each other, but also they could alert police right away if someone was in need of medical attention at the pond. They arrived to Common Ponds around um, 10 a.m. Molly gave her mother a hug, thanked her for the ride, and got out of the car right on time for her 10 a.m. shift. This was the last time Maggie, Molly's mom, would ever see her daughter alive. Three hours later, Maggie would receive an alarming call that would change the trajectory of her and her family's life forever. Molly was missing. 
Apparently, the police had been receiving calls from parents who were quite upset that there was no lifeguard present at the pond. Police found that to be strange because Molly had just come in that morning to pick up the two-way radios. They called Maggie, and Maggie almost couldn't believe it. Of course Molly was there. She had dropped her off there herself. Police told Maggie not to worry. Maybe Molly just decided to hang out with some friends, but Maggie knew she had to worry because that was not at all like Molly to abandon a job. Molly was reliable and committed to this job. Maggie rushed to the pond where she found her daughter's flip-flops, chair, and her first aid kit wide open. Her radio and lunch were sitting on the shore, but there was no sign of Molly. It was as if Molly had gotten her area situated for the day and then was like abducted by aliens or something. And no, that's not where this case is going, although I almost wish it was because it would mean that Molly would probably be safe. Maggie contacted her friends, but no one knew where Molly was. With no leads as to where she was, police had to assume what they thought at the time was the worst. Was it possible that Molly had taken a little swim by herself before the kids got there and had drowned? The lake was searched extensively by divers, but nothing was found. The next morning, an even larger search was conducted with helicopters. Neighborhood, neighboring towns helped in the search as well. They sent out emails to 30,000 people asking the communities for help in finding Molly. Although there was no sign of a struggle at the last known location where Molly was, the more leads that didn't pan out, the police and Molly's family were forced to confront the very strong possibility that Molly had been abducted that summer's day. Thinking back, Maggie remembered something that seemed a little off. The day before Molly's disappearance, there had been a man sitting in a white car in the parking lot. Maggie found his presence out of the ordinary. He was in the car alone. It didn't seem like he knew anyone that he was like waiting for at the beach. He just seemed to be there watching people. Maggie felt uncomfortable and just was like feeling some weird vibes. Basically, her spidey senses were tingling. The man and his white car were not there the morning of Molly's disappearance. While this white car was not seen at the beach, it was noticed by some witnesses who saw a white car with a similar description parked at a nearby cemetery. A sketch was created using Maggie's recollection of this man, and I'm going to post it on my Instagram so you can see it for yourself. The man in the sketch is creepy. He is a little bit older. He has a mustache. And as we all know, mustaches are very, very creepy. I actually just convinced Brian to shave his and my heart could not be happier. Maggie also wanted a sketch created wherein the man was smoking because when she saw him that afternoon, he had been smoking a cigarette. The composite was identical to the man she had seen. Despite this accurate sketch and the calling in of many, many tips and leads, nothing led the the police, or the Bish family any closer to finding their beloved Molly. Molly's disappearance received a lot of media coverage. It was the most expensive police investigation ever in the state of Massachusetts. Production companies picked up on the story as well, and it was featured on Disappeared, America's Most Wanted, 48 Hours, and Unsolved Mysteries with my boyfriend, Mr. Robert Stack, hosting. But nothing has ever led to anything solid. While we don't have any concrete evidence telling us what happened to Molly Bish that fateful morning, we do have theories. 
Most people, along with the Warren PD, believe that Molly was the victim of a ruse. If you remember, when Molly's things were found, her first aid kit was open. It's believed that someone approached Molly feigning some type of injury. Oh, excuse me, do you have a band-aid? Like that type of thing. And Molly went to go retrieve one because she has like a heart of gold when she was blindsided. The suspect stunned her and carried her to their car. Someone may have also faked that they were drowning and when Molly went out to help was overpowered. This may explain why her sandals were off. The location of the pond led to a fork. One direction led to a cemetery where that car was spotted earlier and the other direction led through a densely wooded area. Police believe that after being attacked, she was taken up the road either to the woods or the cemetery, um, either place it would probably go unnoticed. Almost three years after Molly's disappearance, a local hunter contacted police. While he had been out hunting, he had stumbled across a piece of a blue bathing suit. The area was searched, and indeed, there was a blue bathing suit. The same bathing suit that Molly had been wearing the day she went missing. And a DNA lab later confirmed it was Molly's. A week after the discovery of this bathing suit, human remains belonging to Molly Bish were found near a hillside. The mysterious disappearance was now considered a homicide. Remarkably, only 26 of Molly's 206 bones were found. Her family said their goodbyes and buried Molly with letters from her friends and family and her prom dress. Let's talk about some more theories and potential suspects. Okay, so obviously we have the man from the sketch, Police really did their research comparing the sketch to men around the town as well as surrounding areas because, like I mentioned before, this pond was in an isolated area. It wasn't something that a passerby would be able to find on their own. They would have had to have been local to the area or a friend or family member of someone local to the area. And I know how small towns can get when you accuse one of their own of committing a heinous crime, but we're not solving any cases by refusing to believe the supposedly unbelievable. I know it sucks to think that someone you know a neighbor or a loved one or a co-worker could be a murderer, but murderers gotta live and work somewhere, so they're inevitably somebody's neighbor or co-worker, unfortunately. Hopefully not yours, but you never know. The Bish family were disturbed to learn just how many sex offenders were residing in the area at the time that Molly was taken from them. I don't know if maybe those resources weren't readily available to them or if the Bish family was just unaware of those resources. If you want to do a creepy thing, (laughs) later tonight you could visit familywatchdog.org, sorry, familywatchdog.org, type in your address and see all of the sex offenders living near you. I promise you, no matter how safe there's air quotes there, Uh, you think your neighborhood is, um, I guarantee you there are a buttload of them. In 2008, a new suspect came to light. His name was Rodney Strangler. And besides the fact that his last name is quite creepy, Rodney had apparently also murdered his girlfriend. And this is what got him on police's radar because presumably before Rodney murdered his girlfriend, she had told quite a few people that she believed Rodney might have been involved in the murder of a young girl in Massachusetts. When you compare Rodney Strangler's face to the sketch, it does look similar, albeit the sketch makes his hair appear dark and he's actually pretty fair-skinned, like kind of gingery almost. Rodney had lived in the Warren area for quite some time and he was an avid hunter, meaning that he would know those woods where Molly was found pretty well. 
The YMCA, where Molly took her lifeguard classes, was located very close to where Rodney had been living at the time. Is it possible that he saw her at the YMCA and developed a fascination with her? While we don't have concrete evidence, it's certainly possible. Crazier things have definitely happened. A year after the murder, Rodney left and moved to Florida, maybe because things were getting a little too uncomfortable for him. Was he feeling the heat, as they say? Uh, Rodney is currently serving a 25-year sentence for the murder of his girlfriend. Was it just a crime of passion, or was Rodney trying to keep her from telling his secrets? An investigator met with Rodney in prison to discuss the Molly Bish case. He brought along a picture of Molly to kind of gauge Rodney's reaction upon seeing it. When he placed Molly's picture in front of Rodney, Rodney looked down and pushed it away. He would not or could not look at her picture. Another sex offender named Gerald Bastistoni was considered a person of interest in this case as well. A lot of people say the resemblance of the sketch is uncanny, but I'm not so sure. Um, I'm a bit Switzerland in this situation. Um, He frequented the area where Molly was found and had actually incurred a rape charge by a girl who lived near the pond, so obviously he knew that area. Gerald actually died in 2014, so This theory is going to be a tough one to confirm. After his death, police had hoped that someone who knew him in his life would now feel comfortable coming forward with, you know, potential information that would incriminate him, but no such thing has happened as of yet. Some people believe Molly Bish's murder is connected to another murder. Holly Peranen was a 10-year-old girl living in Massachusetts. She and her brother had been visiting their grandmother in Sturbridge when Holly was murdered. Apparently, Holly and her brother had gone to a neighbor's house whose dog had just had puppies. Later, her brother returned home without Holly. Later that day, one of Holly's shoes was found on the side of the road. Two months later, Holly's remains were found by hunters, and this killer has also never been found. This is not the only connection between Molly and Holly. Apparently, shortly after the murder of Holly, little sweet Molly Bish, who had to have been no more than 10 years old at the time, wrote a letter to the parents of Holly expressing her remorse for their loss. Here is an an excerpt from that letter now. I'm very sorry. I wish I could make it up to you. Holly was a pretty girl. I wish I would have known Holly. Okay, so there was forensic evidence found near the body of Holly that was traced back to a man named David Pouliot. When I found a picture of this dude, you have to go to my Instagram post and see this guy. Holy hell, he bears a striking resemblance to the man Maggie Bish described to the police in her composite sketch. David knew the area well. He was a hunter and a fisherman, but Puglia also died in August of 2003. Unfortunately, this seems to be another dead end as well, unless someone who knew him in life chooses to come forward. Last year, the Bish family pushed for the passage of a familial DNA bill. What this would mean is that any unknown DNA sample found at a crime scene could be put through sites such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe and see if they get any hits for a family member of an unknown suspect, thereby leading police to the killer. I'm all for that because I want these crimes to be solved. However, I realize that this has the potential to get messy and infringe on privacy laws from citizens who have not done anything wrong. Like when you have to give a DNA sample, a warrant is required. And a lot of people who submitted their spit to these sites 
just wanted to learn where their ancestors came from. They weren't submitting to being tested every time a murderer or rapist commits a crime. So I can sort of see both sides of this argument. Uh, this bill has been passed in other states, notably the vaginal sample of the daughter of the BTK. BTK killer. This sample retrieved from a lab directly led police to Dennis Rader, but the sample was tested without his daughter's consent. So it seems a little bit sketch. Granted, I'm extremely happy that Dennis is behind bars, but I don't know. His daughter felt pretty violated by the whole thing, and I can understand where she's coming from. Maggie's parents have also founded the Molly Bish Foundation, which spreads awareness about child safety and how to prevent abductions. The foundation has helped with gathering thousands of fingerprints and photographs of minors because before, we never really considered fingerprinting children, but it really could make a world of difference if a child was to go missing. They've also testified in front of the Supreme Court to help pass laws about sex offender registrations and aided in the appearance of our new license plates that make them more legible and easier to remember. Remember when there used to be like no space in the numbers and letters? Thank the Bishes for that space. It's much easier to remember two smaller sets of numbers than one long ass one. And while the Bish family never could have known that this would become their life's mission, they have certainly risen to the occasion with grace and dignity. It's been 20 years since Molly Bish was abducted. She would have been 38. Who knows what great strides and accomplishments she would have contributed to the world had her life not been cut short. I know for sure she would have done amazing things because she had a heart filled with kindness and a beautiful empathy for others. If you have any information regarding Molly Bish or Holly Purinan's case, please call the tip line at 508 453 7575. Okay, so don't get too excited. This case has not been solved, but in June of this year, there was a major break in this case. A man, not discussed in our podcast, who died in 2016, is being seriously considered in the disappearance and subsequent murder of Molly Bish. His name is Francis Frank. P. Sumner Sr. Police are obviously keeping information pretty close to the chest, but they are seeking tips from the public about Sumner's employment, associations, vehicles, travel, and any known habits or ticks of Sumner's. So again, if you have any information or knew Frank Summer Sr. around the time of Molly's disappearance or even knew him afterwards, please call 508 453 7575. What do you make of this case? Do you think Molly and Holly's cases are connected or just a bizarre coincidence? Let me know what you think over at my Instagram post at Mystery Still Unsolved. Want to know how you can support this podcast? Follow me on Instagram, visit my website, tell a true crime loving friend or family member about it, and join me next week when together we'll discover. Did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?